as we look at that chair-free person, Jesus made it very clear that the harvest is plentiful, but the chair-free workers are few. Why is that? Before I get ahead of myself, let's first look at Jesus. When Jesus goes to the disciples in Matthew chapter 4, there's a very strategic defining moment in Jesus' life. You're 18 months into the life of Christ by the time you're at Mark 1.16 or Matthew 4, uh, 12 and on. John the Baptist, his cousin, has just been put into, pr into prison. Jesus now takes up the message of preaching the repent for the kingdom of God is near. Jesus makes a move from his hometown of Nazareth to Capernaum. But more important, Jesus now is going to, with a laser focus, turn his attention upon investing in a few disciples that he's going to go deeper with. And he goes to them, James and John and Simon and Andrew and later on Matthew, some of the different ones that he initially started with, but he goes to them and he says, follow me. For I'm going to make you a fisherman. I'm going to teach you how to reproduce your life. What very strategic about this, with laser focus, Jesus now begins to pour into a few, teaching them to reproduce their life in others. We're in this series, Four Chairs. We started with this chair, the camper's chair, which represents the person who's on the go seeking a spiritual foundation. Then over here in this corner, uh, underneath the screen, you can see our high chair and our recliner lazy boy chair. When you make the transition from seeker to believer, we begin as infants trying to feed, learn, grow from others. But we start at that point. The danger is, remember, that we can slip into the lazy boy and never get out of that because that's just way too comfortable. And then we come to chair three. <clears throat> and I, and I, some of you may be dealing with a little bit of tension. I don't know where I am. Am, am, I, am I still a seeker? Have I really made that choice? Have I gotten out of the high chair? Am I stuck in the lazy boy aspect of chair two? <laughs> I kind of like this cartoon. I don't know if you've seen this before. <laughs> oh, here we go, Martha. To adjust the tension control on your miracle lift chair, simply turn the release knob counterclockwise. How many of you feel like you've hit the wall in this journey of faith? How many of you feel like the tension has been ratcheted up or you're just being tossed around all over the place not knowing where do I belong? Well, I understand that. You see, we're talking about four chairs, but no two people are in the same chair in the same way. Uh, no, no two processes are the same. No two people get to the same point at the same time. The amount of knowledge or convincing evidence needed to bring one person from chair one to chair two is altogether different than what is required from another person in chair one to chair two. In similar fashion, the spiritual knowledge and equipping needed to move a believer from the high chair to chair three will differ with every Christian. And again, there's the warning of the lazy boy. Don't get too comfortable or you'll get used to people feeding you all the time and it will lull you into a sense of indifference about continued growth in Christ. Now today as we begin chair three, we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to start the sermon. Tim's going to take the second half. This is tag team preaching at its finest this morning. All right. And so I just want to lay the groundwork for chair three. Now, 
this is chair three right here. <clears throat> we, can, we can easily call this chair by several different names this morning. We can call this a server's chair or a worker's chair. You say, wait, 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 wait a minute. That's a learner's chair. That's the kind of chair that you sometimes find in a school. I mean, this is where you sit. It's got the, yes, that's true. But what's the purpose of learning? Is it just for the sake of learning or is the purpose of learning to take us to a new level in life? The word I like best for this chair is the engager's chair. And it involves work. It involves service. Certainly, that, that is true. But, but the word engage is such a good word. Engage means to occupy, attract, or involve someone's interest or attention. To participate or become involved in. When a young man pops a question and the young lady says yes, we say they are what? Silly? No, we say they are what? Engaged. That's exactly right. They've been, now, here's the thing. They've been learning about each other for a long time. They've been growing in their knowledge of each other for months, maybe even years. But they reach a point. At some point, they're ready to take that learning and that involvement to a higher level of commitment. They become exclusive in their relationship. They're done dating anybody else. They are committed to the singular relationship between the two of them. And their intent is to get married and to spend the rest of their lives being engaged in that relationship. You see, you don't stop being engaged in the relationship. The relationship doesn't suddenly magically get easy. You have to stay involved, intensely involved. And that's the challenge of the Christian life, to continue growing in our knowledge, but be engaged at a higher level than what we experienced while we were in the high chair. Yes, we're growing, but that growth, that learning, that knowledge is changing who we are. And I think of it like this. <clears throat> I've always liked... Driving a manual transmission in a car. I've had several cars through the years that have had manual transmissions. The one that I'm driving right now is a manual transmission. In order to get the car to move, what do you have to do with the clutch? Engage the clutch. Five people here know what it's like to drive a manual transmission today. You engage the clutch and then you can put it in gear. And once it's in gear, you can move forward. Do you see what, what chair three is about? Before I can move forward in my relationship with Christ, I have to engage in the work, the service, the labor of his kingdom. And, and really, that's what education is all about. Education isn't just for amassing knowledge. It's for being able to use that knowledge. The Bible speaks more about wisdom than it does about knowledge because there is a difference between the two. So often our culture uses wisdom and knowledge interchangeably. Now the, true are, the two are related to be sure, but they are not synonymous. Knowledge refers to the information or skills that we learn through some kind of formal education or personal experience. Wisdom then is the ability to use that knowledge in the best possible way. Now you all know that there are folks who have vast amounts of knowledge, but very little practical wisdom or common sense. Of the two, knowledge and wisdom, wisdom is to be preferred because it comes from God. Former 
chaplain of the U.S. Senate, Vance Havner, wrote this. He said, if you lack knowledge, go to school. If you lack wisdom, get on your knees. Knowledge is not wisdom. Wisdom is the proper use of knowledge. And that's God's invitation. If you lack knowledge, ask me. Pray for it. Be sincere. And I will give you wisdom. Not long ago, our granddaughter Addie got one of those magic eight balls. You remember those? I had no idea they were still producing these silly things. And you know how it works. You ask a yes or no question, and then you turn it over. There are, there are 20 possible lame answers on the bottom of that magic eight ball. Some of them are, uh, go like this. <clears throat> yeah, as I see it, yes. Or ask again later. Or better not tell you now. Or concentrate and ask again. Yeah. Don't count on it. And the list goes on and on. Whenever we played with one as kids, I just kept turning it over and over and over until I got the question and the answer that I wanted. How about you? And isn't that the way we sometimes live life? We just keep at it until we get the answer we want. We keep looking for it. We keep seeking it. We keep going to other sources until sometime we get the answer that we feel like we want. But that's not wisdom. Wisdom is seeking the truth and then using that truth to shape our lives. Not seeking an answer that we want to hear because that doesn't shape anything but our self-indulgence. And, and wisdom is, well, it remains in short supply. You don't have to look too far to realize that. In May of this year, uh, Johanna Giesehall visited her local tattoo artist in her Swedish hometown with with one goal in mind. She, she wanted the names of her two children intertwined on her arm. And so the tattoo artist went to work. When the session was done, she looked at her arm and nearly fainted. Joanna realized that her son's name, Kevin, had been misspelled. It was now Kelvin, K-E-L-V-I-N. In indelible permanent ink. She couldn't change the ink, but then she had a brainstorm. She could change her son's name. <laughs> and that's what she did. How do you go home and tell your son, hey, Kelvin? <laughs> Sometimes, you know, we make choices that are not necessarily wise in life. When given the choice to have anything he wanted, Solomon chose wisdom and God blessed him for it. God not only gave him wisdom to rule the nation of Israel well, he also gave him wealth and strength and power and prominence. It's no wonder then that we have so many awesome proverbs from the pen of the wise King Solomon. As a matter of fact, the book of Proverbs begins this way. Proverbs 1, verse 1 says, These are the proverbs of Solomon, David's son, king of Israel. Their purpose... Their purpose is to teach people wisdom and discipline to help them understand the insights of the wise. Their purpose is to teach people to live disciplined and successful lives to help them do what is right, just, and fair. These proverbs will give insight to the simple, knowledge and discernment to the young. Let the wise listen to these proverbs and become even wiser. Let those with understanding receive guidance. And then twice, just in verse 7 of that same passage and over in Proverbs 9.10, we read these words, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear is not fear in the sense of being scared. It is with deep respect. 
deep respect for the Lord, his word, his ways, his truths is the beginning of wisdom. Notice what Solomon is saying. God's word communicates wisdom, builds discipline, provides understanding and insights. And then he says, the purpose is to help us what? Do. There's the bottom line. Do what is right, just, and fair. You see, leaning on God's wisdom to engage his work and his world is what chair three is all about. It begins in this chair. <laughs> but once again, if you don't ever get out of that chair, there's a drawback to it. Uh, I, I think you move from that chair to this chair, back to this chair, and back to this chair. You say, what in the world is this chair? This is a mechanic's chair. This is what I use to work on my car. It's, it's okay to sit in this chair and learn. It's okay to go to a YouTube video and say, how do I replace that part on my vehicle? But just watching the video or just reading it in a book isn't going to do anything. You've got to get down and do the work. You see, that's what God is asking of us in chair three. Learn and do. Learn and do. Can I tell you there's little satisfaction in knowledge alone? But when you fix a problem, when you build something, when you create, there's a satisfaction that comes. So get all the knowledge that you can and then wisely use it to do. You can read every book on swimming in the world, but you won't be a swimmer until you step into the water. Christian, are you, are, are you ready for chair three? Are you ready to engage the challenging moments of God around you? Every time Tom asks me to speak, he goes away. And he's learned his lesson. So he's here this week. <laughs> well, there's a good chance if you're here in this room this morning that you live here in Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, and Bloomington is an academic community. Many of us in this room gain our living uh, either primarily or secondarily or tertiarily. I won't go further than that. Uh, through, the, through the, the economy that's generated by either Ivy Tech or Indiana University in some way, shape, or form. In fact, just raise your hand. If, if part of your paycheck is a result of IU in some way or the academic community, there's quite a few of us in the room right now. So we pray that IU stays healthy so that your tithe checks can continue to roll in. <laughs> So when we talk about learning in this community, we, we have a pretty good idea. And Tom referred to this. He goes, most of, us, most of us look at a chair like this and we immediately have this idea, either, either through our own experience in the classroom or, or what we've seen on movies and TV. You know, we, we, we sign up for the class. We go to the class. We listen to the teacher uh, lecture. We take really, really good notes. We take a test. Hopefully we pass the test. And then we have some information that we can pull out at parties and gatherings and impress our friends and, uh, and neighbors. When you come into the church, sometimes that attitude or that concept sort of stays the same. You, you come to the morning gathering. Tom preaches a great message. You take really, really good notes. Or you go to a Bible study or a life group and you listen to the video or you listen to the teacher. You take really, really good notes. And then later on Facebook, you get to impress all your friends about how well you do on these Bible trivia quizzes. 
which is the whole point, isn't it? To do really good on Facebook Bible quizzes. No, no, that's a joke. That's a joke. I expected more laughter from that, but it's all right. That's all right. Knowing the Bible is important. So when I say, when Tom says that it's not just about learning scriptures, none of us are saying that knowing the Bible is not important. It is extremely important. How important is it? extremely important. I grew up with this verse ringing in my ears from a young age. It's, uh, it's from 2 Timothy 2.15. Now, it's from the authorized version. The church I attended, we used the authorized version. The authorized version was an old, old, early, early, early translation authorized by good King James. Now, King James was British. So, I'm going to have a stand and we're going to read this scripture together, 2 Timothy 2.15, in our very best British accent. <laughs> Are you ready? Are you ready? Now, now, John Tweedy is actually British here on the third row, so impress him. Impress him, okay? Are we ready? Show me the scripture. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. John, every, every country and province in England was represented by the accents here today. We had Cornwall, we had Yorkshire, we had posh London accents, we had the East End. Um, that was mine, I was doing East End. Did you recognize it? You guys can be seated. Turn to your neighbor and say, never do a British accent in public again. <laughs> so we are not downplaying study because that verse tells us to study to show ourselves approved unto God. And when I was a kid growing up, it was a visual of me sitting in a chair like that and God looking over my shoulder going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, pretty good. Or, hmm, you need to read another chapter before you close that Bible. But that's not really what the scripture is saying at all. In fact, the second half of that scripture really informs the first half. The second half says this. We should be workmen, unashamed and confident, rightly dividing, rightly discerning the truth. Tom talked about that a little bit ago, knowledge and wisdom. God calls us to be wise workmen, men and women skilled in what we do. He is not calling us to be students who live only in an ivory tower studying archaic texts. No, we are skilled laborers who have studied the training manual and are putting into effective practice what we have studied. My cousin Nathan just graduated from welding school in Ohio. Now he would tell you that reading the welding manual was very important. No one wants to get their eye burned out. But it wasn't until he he pulled the visor over his eyes, he fired up the welding equipment, and he put the torch to the metal that he actually proved that he could weld. Like jumping into a pool, you can, you can watch swimmers, you can read about swimming, but until you get your feet wet, as Tom said, you don't know if you can swim or not. Well, the, the manual is important, and the Bible is our, our welding manual. Applying, applying what we've read is where we learn its lessons. Several years ago, I was serving in a church in Reno, Nevada. And my life group went through an eight-week study of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, for anyone unfamiliar with the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit are, are just attitudes and motivations that, that inform and, and, and um, 
define your behaviors and your words and your actions. And, and they're evidence to people out there that you're really who you say you are. Uh, sort of a, a spiritual DNA for Christians. So um, as a reminder to all of us, the description of the fruit of the Spirit is found in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And I'm going to ask you to read, read it with me again, this time without a British accent. Um, but let's read this together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love That's a lot of them. It was a long study. And I remember at the end of it, one of the participants in the study said, okay, now that, now that I've learned all about the fruit of the Spirit, I want to learn about, and the, the, the instructor caught, cut him off and said, no, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> you don't know anything about the fruit of the Spirit yet. You've simply read and studied and talked about the fruit of the Spirit. You won't know the fruit of the Spirit until you get out there in life and begin rubbing shoulders with people and situations that challenge you. And when you are challenged, then you will learn what the fruit of the Spirit actually looks like. And what he meant was this. Learning is a two-part process. The first is the acquisition of information. But the second is applying the, the information. We don't know what love means, for example, until until, man, we've been tested in how we've had our heart broken or we've tried to love people who just refuse to be loved, just difficult people. And yet we continue, maybe this is your one life, where you're loving them and you're like, my word, this is difficult. You're learning what love is. You don't know what joy is until, until you've experienced deep disappointment or, or heartache and you've seen in the middle of that, God come alongside of you and point to purpose and meaning in it. And you are able to go, okay, God, I, can, I know that you're doing good things because of this. You don't know what patience is until you've tried to get from Bloomington to Martinsville on Highway 69. <laughs> but you get the idea. It's, it's one thing to, to study, the, study the passage. It's another thing to begin to sort of live and work it out. And for the Christian who really responds to Jesus and decides to follow him, he will lead you through these places where, where all this will be put to the test and you will find yourself loving unlovable people. You will find yourself experiencing joy and peace in the midst of situations where people around you go, how are you experiencing joy and peace in all of this? But in the process, you will know Jesus. Job is one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. The scriptures begin by describing Job, and they call him this. They say he is blameless, and he is upright, he fears God, and he shuns evil. How many of you guys would like for someone to call you, say that about you? Tim is blameless and upright. <laughs> he fears God and shuns evil. Well, maybe someday I will do all of those things. But until then, I am still working my way through this. But like many of us, Job has, has sang Amazing Grace, and he's, he's Blessed assurance and how great thou art. But it wasn't until after he had actually endured one crushing blow and one crushing experience after another that he, he could say that he had experienced God in all his mystery and majesty. And here's what he said in Job chapter 42, verse 5. He says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. To be able to say that we have seen God not just heard God, 
And by seeing God, we mean this, that we've experienced him and his unmistakable hand guiding us through our lives. That means that we have to actually get out there in, into life and begin living it as a Christian. It means risking and making some mistakes in order that, that the Holy Spirit may, through the word, guide us into the right way. One of our values here at Sherwood Oaks is, is that we tell life-changing faith stories. Perhaps you've been inspired by one of the stories that we've shared here. But here's, here's a little secret. None of us has a life-changing faith story apart from our willingness to be obedient to God's word and our willingness to follow Jesus wherever God's word leads us. You know, Tom talked about, you know, chair three being the engaging chair. I, I, for, for me, chair three is the trust and obey chair. Jesus calls his disciples to be fishers. I mean, he calls all of us to engage back into the world. So they had a unique perspective on that. They were actually fishermen, so they understood fishers of men in a certain way. But for me, it looks like trust and obey. It means that I have around me several spheres of influence that I need to trust God in and be obedient in. The first sphere is this. I am called to spiritually influence the sphere of my friends and my family. It looks like this. I love and provide for the people God has given into my immediate care. For most of us, this is our family. It's coworkers, the people you spend a large percentage of the day with. I would argue it's our neighbors. And if you want to know who your neighbor is, check out Luke chapter 10. The other sphere is the sphere of my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm called to spiritually influence my brothers and sisters in Christ. How do I do that? Well, I love and encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ. You know how? It's easy. Show up. Show up. How encouraging are we when we just look around the room and go, wow, this is fantastic. I love to see a full house. That's encouraging to Tom. It's encouraging to me. It's encouraging to others. But the other way that goes a little bit deeper is serving alongside them in the context of ministry of the church. From the parking lot to the production booth, there's a place for you to help right here on Sunday morning. And then the third sphere that I believe God would call us into is, is the community around us. I am called to spiritually influence this community. How does that look like? I love and serve the community where God has placed me. Maybe it's Bloomington. Maybe it's Ellisville. Maybe it's Gosport. Maybe it's Brown County. Maybe it's Bedford or Olytic. I don't know. But wherever God has called you to, I believe he has called you there to impact in ways more than just paying your property taxes. It's easy to be a witness for Jesus at church, but it's critical to be a witness for Jesus in our communities. This is where we will be tested to see if we are really Christians or Christians in name only. How will we be tested? We'll be tested in the aspect of love. You get involved in your community, you volunteer help with local events, you donate time to a good cause, you're gonna get out there and you're gonna rub shoulders with folks outside your normal circle and they're gonna be looking at you and they're gonna be observing some things. And you know what they're gonna be looking at? They're gonna be looking at how well you love. John 13, 35 says this, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you what? If you love one another. This is the test of spiritual authenticity. When art detectives are attempting to discover the authenticity of a painting, they have to rely on more than just the signature at the bottom of the canvas. Forging a signature is relatively easy. When I was in high school, I was really good at forging my mom and dad's signature. The attendance officer never called. 
never called. But art detectives have to look for more than just the name at the bottom of the canvas. They're looking for a signature, but they're looking for signature marks. Signature marks of the artist, their brush strokes, the depth, the intensity, the types of color, small details like eyes and ears or leaves that will be identifying marks, even touch and smell. They know that the name at the bottom of the page is just one indication of the master. But does your life pass the authenticity test of love? Is is that an authentic signature at the bottom of the canvas or just a good forgery? We're going to take up the morning's offering here in just a few moments. But I want us to think about this when we give. You look at the the chair here. Um, In chair two, you took on the name Christian. You said, okay, I'm a believer. I'm going to... I'm going to be known as a Christian. You were baptized and everyone looked and applauded. But in in chair three, you get a chance to sort of put some real feet and hands behind this. How is God's love being lived out authentically through you? If you don't know the answer to that, I encourage you to pray real strongly for God to move you out of your comfortable chair into the next chair. One of the aspects of chair three that that I've experienced is that that I, I have to trust God more. I found personally that trusting him with my finances is the first place God addresses with me. Countless times when I've wrestled with anxiety or, or fear, God has drawn me back to the question of, have I been faithful in the past? And I have to say, yes, you have. Every time I'm reminded that as I trust him, God provides. Hopefully, you've had the same experience. In fact, I know if you've been obedient to God, he has proven that to you. I like this chair. Who knows how many students have sat in this very chair and learned how to go do. Uh, the varnish is worn off in several different places. It's, it's down to the, to the bare wood in places. Uh, it, the, the joints are getting loose. They, they've come slightly unglued. I mean, it's been well used. Last week, our theme was transformation. When you move from the chair that says, I don't know if there is a God, to the high chair where you say, I I now believe. That's transformation. That's the renewing of our mind. But today it's transition. It's, It's moving from the high chair to the learner's doer's chair. Are you there? To, to, to move from learning to doing. From understanding the challenge to engaging the challenge. So this week, this week, I want you to open your eyes to the challenges around you, whether that's at home or school or work or the neighborhood, and then respond wisely. Don't just settle for knowledge. Seek the wisdom of God. Douglas Gresham, stepson of C.S. Lewis, wrote this. Stop talking about God's love. Stop studying about God's love. Just get out there and do Christianity. Ah. Doesn't get any clearer than that. Chair three is for the learner who wisely puts into practice everything that God is teaching him or her. 
Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.